This episode of the Designated Drinker Show is sponsored by Sipsmith, the quintessential expression of a classic traditional London dry gin. Bold, complex, and aromatic. Smooth enough for a martini, yet rich and balanced, making for a perfect gin and tonic. Gina pairs it with her Bloody Mary mix to make an amazing red snapper. Every aspect of creating this brilliant spirit is a meticulous research labor of love. So to find out more about the full Sipsmith lineup, check out sipsmith.com. Again, that's sipsmith.com. On this episode of the Designated Drinker Show, we continue our boozy banter with Sipsmith's master distiller, Jared Brown. We explore more of their amazing gins and how this labor of love is like conducting an orchestra that produces balance and harmony that's able to be poured into a glass. While Gina's uh, getting uh, our, our tasting together, tell us the story behind the uh, beautiful swan that's on the label. Well, a dear friend of mine who last year celebrated his 50th year as a gin master distiller had never gone to design a still. He always worked on the big old stills um, built in the uh, early 20th century, wow. late 19th century, and he'd always wanted to design the swan's neck. Oh. You know, on, a, on a pot still, you've got the pot, and then next is the helmet, and then that bend coming off the helmet is the swan's neck. Oh. In whiskey, it dictates the flavor. Everyone knows about this. Um, you look at the Lagavulin stills, and big, broad necks bent down steeply. You look at some of the softer whiskies, you'll see these necks that kind of climb upwards and then drop off and that will give you a completely different flavor profile. Well, with gin, you're starting with a, a neutral spirit. We use a wheat spirit going into the still. So it's not about bringing that flavor over, but by, about bringing the flavor of the botanicals. And he felt that there was a perfect swan's neck that hadn't been done, and he sketched it out. And uh, we talked so much about the swan's neck that Swan became a bit of an emblem, an icon for us. And then a local artist, friend of Fairfax's, who created our label for us, he picked up on that and uh, sketched that swan onto the label. So that's how that came about. It's such a beautiful and like romantic story. Uh, the, everything about this gin feels very romantic. And I, the, that, and so you dip, dip your toe into my world when we talk about branding and, and that, that story of it's not just a swan that you just picked up, you know, off clip art. It has this really wonderful story that builds a really beautiful myth behind the brand. And um, I'm just picking up on, for me, it feels very romantic. It feels like a very romantic brand. It's, it's something it. that I, I dearly love about it is that it started out because it seemed like a good idea after a few drinks. Yeah. <laughs> I, meeting, I know a meeting, few of those. I've had a few of those. Yeah, meeting, <laughs> meeting Sam and Fairfax, who were childhood friends from Cornwall, <clears throat> and then me meeting them over Negroni's. And uh, we got talking, and it was so obvious, even at that first moment, that we shared this passion uh, for the tradition of gin, and that we all wanted to bring gin back to London. And uh, getting together the next day, we didn't have a still, we didn't have a 
company name or anything like that, but we knew that we were going to do this. That's great. I think that's a common thread between a lot of what, who we get to talk to, Gina, and it may be just because, you know, it's like belling up to the bar and talking for the evening. It really is. It's about the passion behind what somebody is doing that makes all the difference. It, yeah. it, it makes it, the true success behind anything has to be the passion that's poured into it. And we, we wanted all of this to grow organically, to happen naturally, and so... We didn't hire a marketing person for almost five years. Uh, <laughs> You're which, my new hero. Do you know that? I want you to know. <laughs> new as romantic I, as hero. I, as I cheaply hoard all of the money that we make so I can open a second location, I literally keep cutting off those things. Like, oh, we can't do that. We can't do that. We can't do that. I feel like the craft will bring you in. It's, you know about it? You'll know about it. Mm -hmm. So speaking oh, yeah. of, let's try this. What yeah. did you pour for us, Gina? Uh, well, how about we just start with it because it's new. Oh. Well, we have the Sipsmith Slow Gin. Uh, though I am a staunch traditionalist when it comes to London dry gin, slow gin uh, couldn't be further from the truth with me because the tradition of slow gin in England, well, it's awkward to say, but they were getting it wrong. <laughs> they really were. The, truth sometimes hurts. The first recipe emerged around 1881 or 1883. The first mention I could find of slow gin was around 1867. And uh, well, slow gin came about because during the mid-Victorian era, there were bankruptcies of these huge country estates and they got divided up into small holdings. And to divide the pastures and the lands, they would plant blackthorn, grows very dense and thorny it's either a very tall shrub or a short tree. <laughs> but um, it's so dense that cows and sheep won't push through it. So suddenly this was all over the countryside. And then comes the autumn, and these are covered with these tiny, bitter, wild plums. And enterprising English farmers would go out and harvest any fruit that popped up. And because you couldn't eat these things, they started making wine from them. Oh. No, no. Oh. Slow wine is awful. Oh, <laughs> oh, it's wretched. <laughs> I've tried it like five times. tried to make it five times, and it just goes straight down the tubes. <laughs> and, uh, my, my wife makes an outstanding black currant wine, red currant wine. Uh, and uh, I've even tried somebody's local parsnip wine. That was better. Uh, <laughs> It sounds awful. So some farmer put slows into gin. And then this recipe emerged that said to harvest them after the first frost, not because it was like making an ice wine, but because it was said you couldn't tell when they were ripe because you couldn't taste them. Oh, wow. So that first wow. frost could come in early September when they were still green. It could come in late oh. November when they were already <laughs> desiccated and falling to the ground. And then said to take each slow and prick it with a thorn from the tree upon which it grew, or a silver pin. Well, I've done the thorn thing. That thorn lasts for about four plums. <laughs> <laughs> so you need a lot of thorns. Um, and no idea why a silver pin. But then they would combine the slows, the gin, and sugar. And why put sugar in there? I, I asked some of the P 
people producing slow on the great country estates. And they say, oh, you know, for the fermentation. Like, fermentation, it's gin. You do realize nothing <laughs> ferments in gin. Um, and so they would take this combination of the gin, the slows, and the sugar, and they would shake it once or twice a week for months to get the sugar to dissolve in there. And uh, so what the sugar actually does is it saturates the spirit, creating an osmotic pressure barrier such that the spirit isn't capable of extracting fruit sugars. Oh. And the recipes, most of the English recipes I saw, would say something like, oh, and use cheap gin, it's just an ingredient, it doesn't matter. I am yet to see a roast beef recipe, so <laughs> use cheap beef, it's just an ingredient, it doesn't matter. Is that not the truth? So we, we came up with a rather radical recipe. We decided to harvest when they're ripe. You Novel. can feel them to tell they're ripe, plus they get yeast powder coating on them, so they hang out. They hang up a little, I'm ripe, son. <laughs> so do you use, uh, um, so it's wild yeast that you're using? Oh, no yeast. No yeast. No, it's, well, just, it, it's on the fruit. It's just on the fruit. Oh, okay. okay yeah, it's okay, on the okay, fruit, okay, but we're, like, we're like, going like, into what gin. What is happening? Okay, go. <laughs> Keep going. I so then we, instead of pricking them with a pin, we put them in a deep freeze. Oh. Bursts the cell structure beautifully. And then we combine our London dry, but because I can, I don't cut it to bottling strength, but I keep it at about 60% alcohol, which is the best strength for extraction in maceration. Is that what it comes off your still, like 120, 120? No, it comes off higher than that. It comes off about um, 164, nice. thereabouts. Wow. Um, <laughs> so then we've got the fruit in with the gin and absolutely no sugar. And now, how long do you leave it for? And I spoke to people who said, oh, I've got some, it's been on the fruit for two years, uh, five years, and we were tasting, and it turns out it's a bit of a bell curve. At two months, that's about the least amount of time you might find that it's done and it's perfect. Usually about three months, and it's right on five months, as long as I'll leave it. Six months, it takes on a new flavor, like you found an old sponge under the sink. <laughs> Drop that in. At two years, it tastes like you found a mud puddle full of oak leaves, ran it over with a Jeep a whole bunch of times, <laughs> and slip a little of that in underneath. I don't think I want that in my glass. <laughs> yeah. uh, so what you have here, and what I mean by when it's ready, is I will nose and taste looking for what I call the four foundations of slow. And that's dark cherry, citrus, cinnamon, and marzipan. Mm, the almond. Yeah. Mm. It's yep. nice. So how does <clears throat> how how would one when what would you pair with? I feel like I'm writing this do down. This? By the way, if you're listening oh. to the podcast, write that down. Uh, you know what you can do, Gina. You'll be able just to listen to it one more time, well, or again, and well, then you can listen to it again well, and again. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so, how does one serve um, slow gin? Is it well? The easiest it, way to serve is just to drink it neat. Mm -hmm. it, it drinks real well neat or on ice, um, but I love it in summer. Tall glass full of ice, about two ounces of slow gin. Top that with soda, a couple of lime wedges. Um, that slow and soda, of course, it has a traditional name. It's the slow gin ricky. Yeah. 
Some wonderful drink milk. <clears throat> and you're in the city of the Ricky. And I feel compelled to make a little correction on the Ricky. Go, go. Because there's serious bartenders out there who really know their Ricky, and so they will always make it with a half a lime squeezed in that husk, dropped in beautifully, and that is not what Colonel Joe Ricky was drinking. What was he drinking? He was drinking it with a half a lime dropped in, but it was a key lime. The small Mexican lime, a tiny lime. So what you get today when you drop half a lime in is the equivalent of about four limes. Hold on, hold on. He is right. So when we do the Ricky competition here, yep. we only use the quarter. If it's if we only can get the yeah. larges, we only use the quarters. We don't use Beautiful. half. Yeah. No, hundred percent correct. Hundred, hundred percent could be proven. Yes, you're uh, you're definitely right. So it, you know, it, it, I always find it a shame when I, I order a Ricky and then it just takes the enamel off my teeth. Because <laughs> <laughs> made properly, it is one of my all-time favorite drinks. I actually like it, a gin Ricky better than a gin and tonic. Well, if it's made right and the gin is right, then it should work perfectly. Oh, yeah. Um, I feel like you need to come back for the Ricky competition. Oh, I'd love to be here for a Ricky competition. Um, <clears throat> I think we know some people that can make that all happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think so. You know, be in Washington, D.C., we're in Jack Rose Dining Saloon, which is an amazing whiskey bar and spirits bar. Um, I feel it. And they also host the Ricky competition. Oh, um, just yeah. so We just might know a few folks. We just might know a few folks. I just, feel like that's a good idea. Yes, very. So what was? let's go through the last. Um, what else do we have today? What else did you bring us? Well, of course, we have the yes. Sipsmith London Dry Gin. Yes. Uh, this is a very traditional gin. This is the first gin that we made and the one that we personally love best we do this closest to your heart very much you, you've, you're not supposed to have a favorite child i don't think but you know, normally you're hey, not but this judging? one is so gene is this what you used it. in the, um the red snapper yes yes so oh, it smells so delicious and this is gin uh, made as it used to be made as it should be made this is gin that's not from concentrate um, Hold on. The, Louise, have you ever drank gin straight and warm? In what? Have you ever had warm straight gin? Yes, yes. Really? Yes. That, that's what you said you give bartenders on their rookie shifts. They're like, oh, you want a shot at the end of the, end of the shift? And that's how you knew they were going to make it or not. You gave them a little bit of warm gin in a cup, and if they were able to stomach it, we'd be like, see you tomorrow. <laughs> and if funny. not, see you next never. Get out. <laughs> wow, I was just, I, I was just, I think I might have when, almost when just got kicked off my own show. When, when <laughs> she was like, you're out. <laughs> no, good answer. <laughs> have you ever drunk straight warm gin, what, this morning? Yeah, but that's yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I've had it with her. <laughs> uh, I'll take a cheers. Okay, sorry, now. So this is gin made in one shot on a copper pot still, not gin from concentrate. Today, uh, the bulk of the world's volume of gin is made from gin concentrate. If I overloaded the still 30 times the botanicals necessary for that batch, what would come off is a gin flavoring. Then I could fill a bottle with neutral spirit and water and put about a half an ounce of that in or less. And it's gin. Oh. And the definition of London dry gin is two-part. One, that the predominant flavor must be juniper. 
and the other nothing can be added after distillation except for spirit and water. And that was just taken to an extreme where it's a bottle of spirit and water with a little gin. gin. Yeah. <laughs> now, we don't do that. Um, about two-thirds of this bottle is liquid that came off the still. And then the rest is the water to bring it to bottling strength. And we do not reverse osmosis filter our water. We barely demineralize it because on our bottle, London isn't just a style. It's a provenance. Yeah. Yeah. See, it's all romantic. Aww. He's poetic. He's a writer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now I know why people belly up to your bar. <laughs> I mean. Well, it might have been the, the first go around of different drinks, but you know, hey, they came back. It was you. You, you won them over. <laughs> I mean, you might be, you know, the stiller now, but you'll always be a bartender. Like, okay. that's definitely the entertainment portion of it. I've met a lot of distillers. Do not have that kind of story. I, I was really fortunate in a lot of ways for my industry sort of environmental experiences. Uh, age six, the local vegetarian restaurant got turned into a roadhouse bar outside of Ithaca, New York, Termansburg, New York, the Rongovian Embassy, uh, which was <laughs> it was a phenomenal bar. I think if it closed it closed just a few months ago but in 1970 it was brand new open I was six years old learning to read and I kept going behind the bar because I had to find out what the heck from the board up behind the bar was a suffering bastard dying bastard dead bastard <laughs> and Malayan fog cutter <laughs> it turns out that the owner was friends with Charles H Baker Oh. author of The Gentleman's Companion, Around the World yeah. with Jigger Beaker and Flask, and Charles H. Baker had done the drinks list for In the, the bar that was my local. Yeah, That's amazing. That is amazing. So I'm confused. You're in, so where did you, where were you from? Where were you I was born? born in Ithaca, New York. Ah. I grew up there in upstate ah. New York, a few years in Vermont, and then to New York, to Manhattan. Then uh, after I met my wife, we went off on what was essentially a seven-year road trip. Wow. Uh, Chicago, Vancouver, San Francisco, Boise, Idaho, before returning back to New York. What did you do in Boise? I have to know. <laughs> Besides, love potato chips? What so happened there? We were, we were looking for quiet because San Francisco was a party every night. And if you didn't show up, or return phone calls. They'd come to your house and get you, and yeah, drag you yeah, to the party. Exactly. <laughs> um, and we were trying to write a couple of books at the same time. And we were writing at the time for Wine Spectator, Cigar Aficionado, Food Arts. Wow, that's great. Food Arts. Oh. Yeah, wonderful magazine. It really was. Yeah. It is. No, it was. Is it gone? It's defunct. I don't know. Food Arts doesn't come out like that, it comes out quarterly. So it was. A, it's a. It's a real. It's yeah. a real like, you know, restaurant chef, driven um, yeah. industry. Wow. Yeah. So we got there looking for quiet. Um, we looked for a one bed, one bath, or two bed, one bath to rent, and we ended up finding a fourteen room, four thousand square foot Victorian, <laughs> sprawling house, and the the owner of it had really liked us when we met him and he gave us a really good deal on it. 
I felt bad for cats because it was like a full city block walk for them to get to the litter box. So really if, if they left it late, they'd have to do it on a bit of a run. Uh, but Probably kept them alive longer. Once, once we were there and barely settled in, we discovered that a friend of ours from Seattle, Mark Novak, who created the Seattle Martini Competition and the International Martini Competition between Vancouver and Seattle, moved there within a week of us. Wow. And then... Of all places. We all met this wonderful guy named Kevin Settles, who was opening up the Bardenay, which became North America's first microdistillery restaurant. Wow. And uh, Anastasia and I ended up going over there uh, more times than I can count, from like 8 a.m. to 10 a.m., to sit in the distillery, blending and tasting and uh, working with Kevin to create a gin. He'd never done a, a commercial gin or commercial distillation. We'd never done it in our collective innocence. We chose to start with the most challenging and complex <laughs> of all the spirits. Oh, you know, why not? It's like starting math and calculus. Yeah. yeah and it, it was a phenomenal experience because the local organic co-op had a library of jars of botanicals. Wow. A few hundred different wow. things. So you know, walk in in the afternoon and say, oh, you know what? Let's find out what the difference is in distillation between anise, star anise, star anise yeah. and licorice because those all seem the same and then you go in distill them all off uh, or onto a different one and just we must have gone through 50 odd botanicals in tests and then wow. blending them into gin so that was really our the beginnings of our education in gin um, it was a beet sugar base for the spirit wow that's nice um, yeah, it's kind of interesting stuff. There are a lot of distillers who would just blanch at that thought, but that gin took 92 points from the Beverage Testing Institute. Wow. And the Bardenay gin and the Bardenay restaurant are still going strong today, and that was that was 98. Do they still and, use beet sugar? Uh, I believe it's still a, a beet sugar base. Do, yeah. do, you, do you know, so he says beet sugar, it's not red beets, it's white beets. They look like potatoes and they produce a lot of uh, sugar and continent. But uh, it's very like old school. It was a cheaper way of get, or not cheaper way, it was a localer way of getting sugar in places that couldn't get sugar cane. Yep. So just exactly. to kind of give you guys a background of what That's he's talking about. so interesting. Yeah, and that, that quite literally was the case in Idaho. That's the, the local sugars from sugar beets and uh, yeah he's even expanded it to three restaurants now he's got one in in Boise one in Eagle and one up north in McCall and I love I love the concept of his his restaurant the approach to it Uh, he loved the Gramercy Tavern but especially the bar instead of the restaurant. Who doesn't love that bar to yeah. this day? And what he loved about it is you got the same quality of food, but much more intimate and casual service. And just really, the bar was such a comfortable spot to eat. And he wanted to take that feeling and expand it from his bar 
across the whole restaurant. Now his restaurant was in an old telegraph warehouse, is in old telegraph warehouse, wow. 350 seats. That bar top in his place is 72 feet long. Wow. The back bar, 15 feet high, library ladder, separate freezers for the shakers, the mixing glasses, the glassware, the Maytag blue cheese stuffed olives, oh, the martinis, the works. I'm going on. Oh, okay. <laughs> it turned out that he had done his opening cocktail list and a lot of the bar structure out of a martini book. My wife and I wrote Shake and Not a celebration of the martini. Oh, that's and so cool. at first meeting him, it was so funny because it was another case where we knew at that moment we were going to be doing something with this guy. That's amazing. Do you go back? I haven't been back in ages, and it breaks my heart that my, my travels haven't taken me there, and I'm dying to get there. Also, there's great croquettas across the street in a little Basque place. <laughs> I, though I dearly love the ribeye sandwich with a, a sun-dried tomato aioli that they do. And they run about a, they were running a 48% food cost, which Kind of unheard of, you know, if you're working for Marriott, uh, yeah. you get over 34, you're in trouble. Fired. You're yeah. Fired. But it, the structure worked. It was so, just giving people as much as you could for their money. That's great. Yeah. So what uh, what do we have in the glass now? What um, now we've got the Sipsmith VJOP, and I'm, I'm sure you all know um, VSOP from Cognac, very special pale. And nothing to do with that. We're not French. Yes. Um, <laughs> it stands for very junipery overproof. Oh. Yes. <laughs> awesome. I love that. And uh, when we were making the London dry, it dawned on me that there were three ways you could introduce the juniper into a London dry gin with maceration. Load the still with spirit botanicals, warm up the still, leave it overnight, and then in the morning distill. Uh, Beef Eater Plymouth, my London Dry, those are all macerated. Or um, load the still with spirit and botanicals and distill immediately without maceration. Tanqueray. Or load the still with spirit. Put the botanicals in a basket up in the top of the still or next to the still and just let the vapors of the alcohol pass through the botanicals on the way to the condensing coil. Um, that's Carter Header Botanical Basket Gins. That would be Hendrix, Bombay, Bombay Sapphire. But let's cook carrots for a moment. 24 hours in a slow cooker, carrot soup, steamed carrots, three entirely different flavors from a carrot. Sure. Um, macerated, unmacerated, Carter had three entirely different flavors from juniper. And no one had ever brought them together to put the full juniper flavor spectrum in a single gin, much less doing it in one shot, not by making them separately and blending them together. And I quickly found out why. Making gin is conducting an orchestra of botanicals. One brass, one woodwind, one percussion. Here's the first one with three violins. First violin playing perfectly. Second violin drunk in the parking lot. And third violin <laughs> over by the espresso machine doing double shots. <laughs> Bringing them together was probably the most difficult thing I've ever done. And uh, took around three years to wow. get it to balance. But even once it did, 
it was still a slap. It didn't live up to the most important question that we ask everything we make at Sip Smith. Is it good? <laughs> Is it good? Yeah. Could somebody sit down on a Friday and have three of them? And, and it wasn't that yet. And um, a friend advised that I bring up the ABV. If you shift the ABV on a gin, it'll normally throw the botanicals out of balance. In this case, bringing up the ABV over proof threw them into perfect balance. And we hit 57.7, there it was. We got up to 60, it was gone again. So brought it back down and at 57.7, you got saturation and sustain. The tasting notes are very easy on this. Juniper. It is. It's, Juniper, it's that pine with a back of just soft citrus little bit there. Absolutely. And on the palate, now you're tasting this, Full strength, room temperature, what's at 115 proof. Uh, but it's a very good day. <laughs> it's warming without burn. Good spirits warm, bad spirits burn. No, this is a, a real testament to the heart cut. Well, it's your hand. That's your hand. That's what mm -hmm. makes it a stiller, right? Um, the cut, the heart, mm -hmm. where you are, your heart. Mm -hmm. What do you think that you, you know, like actually understanding the beauty of the product. I love how you just described that. So when you when you're describing that whole symphony, all I can think of is like the forest floor. If you were walking somewhere in like like northern Italy and Austria, like you know, you walk on the carrot tops and you smell it, and it's that aroma. Um, and he knows what I'm talking about. Right there is where you can like just find wild juniper everywhere, and hops, and all different flavors of things. Like they just exist, and like it is. There's a very particular time of year when it's like really beautiful, like right around like, like March, April in that region. You, It's just right when it breaks and everything starts to bloom and there's this pop of like nature and smells and it's pretty great. And then you get again one more time in like the end of September. Nice. But, um, can I just say one thing? I'm gonna just, I'm making the same hot snapper again, but I'm doing it with the other fruit because I think that that juniper, and I could be dead wrong, and we're gonna do this on the show, um, is gonna do, <laughs> I put less um, lemon juice in it because I think that the overproof is actually going to make the, um, the married not quite as, as um, can't think, spicy. Uh, afternoon delight, this is what's happening right now, for sure. <laughs> and that's what I'm gonna use for now. I'm gonna just taste it. I don't have any other stuff. Yeah. Anyway. What do you think? That is, okay, new, new recipe. Oh, that is so good. New recipe. We <laughs> are now going to change all of my Bloody Marys to only using the uh, overproof and the 57.7. It's amazing. And we used a quarter ounce of lemon juice instead of half an ounce to um, a four ounce ratio of uh, Bloody Mary mix. Wow, that is delicious. It is quite. We'll be ordering this and putting it on the menu. I have a lot of, it's gonna be a very busy season at, at uh, Union Market for you, for sure. We have to get you there. So does this Bloody Mary with two straws and me and Louise sitting here at the bar look yes. like a bit of a Norman Rockwell soda? Well, I do image. love it. So we can, we can, I don't know how to oh. put, uh, it, we, I can't, can get it. There you go. Do it again. Obviously Instagram is perfect. Love it. <laughs> Oh, what a what a hard job we have. Yeah. 
So, oh, one last thing I want to talk to you about, and that's your mm-hmm. new library. The and I'm gonna get it wrong. Oh. EUVS, right? EUVSlibrary.com. Um, I was really fortunate to start collecting books on drink uh, back in the day when you could actually find them and when you could actually afford them <laughs> before the prices just went stratospheric. But I believe strongly that um, money should not be a barrier to knowledge. Absolutely. And so my wife and I and a dear friend um, have been scanning and digitizing the rarest books from our collections and putting them up online free, no branding, no password. These are there for anyone who's looking for knowledge. Searchable across the platform. We've got about 150 books up already. Um, our lifetime goal on this is we'd love to get about 1,500 of them up there. Wait, what's your favorite one up there? What's the best one you think? Oh, can there be one? Now there's choosing amongst children. <laughs> um, I, for different reasons, I I dearly love so many of the old cocktail books and distilling books. Um, wow, let me think about that. And I'll come back <laughs> All right. to it. Yeah. on your next episode. Yeah, yeah. I think I think <laughs> my right list. Do you have um, early American beverages on there? The collection book? I believe we do. It's my favorite. That's my favorite book. It's a rare book, and I found it once, and I bought it, and it was like, I think, $8. Mm -hmm. And um, what you just said to me, just like all my heartstrings have been pulled in all different ways because I've lent that book to so many people and feared it was never coming back. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, please don't do this, don't do that. And when you use it, just don't put it behind your bar. Use it at your bar, but just don't bring it behind the bar. And they're like, oh, okay. And it comes back with like grape juice and this and that and you know, whatever. It has its own journey now, but that is spectacular. One book that I do dearly love is the Cafe Royal Cocktail Book. Um, it was published in 1937. Only a thousand uh, copies were printed. It was the Coronation Edition. I think it was uh, Charles VI. I forget which royals coronation it was. And um, I finally got a copy after searching for years, and I opened it up, and right there in the front, it said, all proceeds from the sale of this book go to the um, Cafe Royal staff athletic fund and to the bartender's charity. And it's a bartender's charity, and uh, rang up, a friend over at the UKBG and said, I want to reprint this with all proceeds going to the benevolent, the bartender's charity <laughs> in England. And uh, he said, well, let me look into it and see who holds the rights on this. And uh, I said, actually, I'll take care of that. And we had some look into the rights on it. And I rang him back and I said, actually, you guys do. <laughs> And so they gave the go-ahead, and I'm so happy to see that book is out there, and people are buying it and loving it. Um, I think we've got it out in paperback, so it's not not that expensive. You can find it on Amazon, and to this day, all proceeds are going to an industry charity. That's great. Their house fund, I mean... (laughs) The the benevolent does provide housing for... (laughs) Um, industry people who find themselves 
homeless. Um, it provides uh, grants and loans and medical. Oh. Uh, I met one man who'd been in the industry a while ago and then was paralyzed from the, the waist down and uh, they bought him a phenomenal motorized wheelchair. Oh, that's great. It's always good to hear when the good things happen. Uh, that's great. Yeah. That's awesome. So um, I'm, uh, that brings us uh, to something. Well, one thing I want to do is make sure that all the listeners know um, we will put a link to your website. Um, so that way we can find out more information about all these really great free books and that free knowledge, which is absolutely wonderful. Um, for any of the tips and tricks on what Gina made today, because she did throw two recipes at us, we'll have those both for you at designateddrinker.show. And then you'll, again, be able to quickly jump out to your website and learn more about um, you as well, um, your library as well as um, the beautiful products that you make. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. What a pleasure and an honor. It oh, was. for me as well. This has been such fun and great drinks, too. Yes. Gina's always a master at that. If, if, of gab and of many things. Um, so with that... Just a bartender. No. So with that, I'll do what everyone hates that I always have to do, which is its last call. Jared, we don't have to go home, but we have to get the hell out of here. <laughs> So if you're looking to get the step-by-step to Gina's delicious Red Snapper recipes, more information about Jared's digital library, or to learn all about the Sip Smith lineup, head over to designateddrinker.show. That's designateddrinker.show.